0: Um, and again, the 80s were a very strange time, very bad time for science. I, I remember Reagan um, and this idea that you know we're not going to we're not going to fund much basic science anymore. We're going to fund applied science. That was his major mandate was applied science. Well, applied science requires basic science to keep feeding it stuff it can apply. Okay, <laughs> after a while, you kind of run out.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I've got a special guest who's an expert on radiation policy and nuclear energy. And I'd like to chat a little bit about the science behind nuclear energy and maybe some of the misconceptions that the public has and that Uh, Many of the environmental groups have built up over the years and have shared with the public. As always, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app, uh, share it with your friends, and if you want to dig in behind the surface, talk to the experts, ask questions about the podcast, come and join us on Facebook slash groups slash The Rational View. Geochemist and energy scientist speaker and author, Dr. James Konka, is senior scientist for UFA Ventures Incorporated in the Tri-Cities, Washington, an adjunct professor at Washington State University in the School of the Environment, a trustee of the Herbert M. Parker Foundation, an affiliate scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and a science contributor to Forbes on energy and nuclear issues. Dr. Konka, welcome to The Rational View.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much, Al.
1: Thank you for coming on. That's quite risen, resume. Could you tell me a little (laughs) bit about your background and and how you got to where you are today?
0: Well, it's been interesting. I started out as a planetary scientist, actually, in the 70s at Brown Brown University. So origin of life, planetary science, planetary geology, that kind of thing. And... um, Eventually, I went to Caltech as for a PhD, worked at JPL, my first job, and uh, went to the Antarctic because that is the most like Mars on Earth, although it's a little bit too warm and a little bit too wet, but that's okay. It's as good as it gets. And a
1: little bit too much air.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so while I was down there the second time, um, unfortunately, the Challenger blew up. As just as I was setting up radar reflectors for the Challenger to position itself in space within 10 feet. Hmm. Uh, That was way before GPS. But um, so a lot of us youngins had to find new jobs and uh, went into nuclear. It's kind of funny because many of us in planetary science went into nuclear because it's it's another outside the box kind of subject and it's actually perfect. It's, you know, there's a lot of uh, similarities in terms of planetary science mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. astrophysics and things like that and, and nuclear. Um, so it just worked really well.
1: Planetary science in the '70s. Were you were you involved at all in the Voyager project,
0: or were you inspired by that work? Yeah, oh yes. And in fact, I, I I went down to Goddard to to look at the images as they were first coming in, trying to interpret them. Wow! And be on the phone, be on the phone with the planetary scientists back at Brown. So it was actually quite ex, quite, quite exciting. And then Viking as well. So I my you know my uh, uh, my planets were. Uh, the icy satellites, especially Ganymede around Jupiter, mm-hmm. and Mars. So those those are my two uh, uh, expert expertises in planetary science. So it's kind of neat. So anyway, so so then we went in, you know went I was postdocing at ASU and met Judith, my spouse and colleague, also a geochemist. Ah. And uh, we both got jobs up at Pacific Northwest Laboratory up here at Hanford site, and then uh, uh, went to WSU Tri-Cities, and then Los Alamos, and then down to WIP, which is our only deep geologic nuclear repository that actually is working. People don't really know much about it, but it's brilliant. It's in the right rock, and it works because it's in the right rock. It exists. So, um, yeah. oh yeah. We've, we've already <laughs> disposed of more nuclear waste than ever was destined for Yucca Mountain total, although it's a little bit different. It's bomb waste. It's bomb waste instead of commercial waste. Right. But, but that's okay. It, doesn't really matter what the waste is. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, so that's kind of neat. Then came back to Hanford, um, up here at Tri Cities, because the grandkids were here in 2010, and then um, ran the the low level rad labs out at the site for a few years until they closed down, and then uh, kind of retired, uh, and then started writing for writing for Forbes. Yeah, that's that's it's kind of bizarre. Quite yeah, uh, kind of prestigious. Yeah, what's kind of neat and different because scientists are not told to write like that. And uh, after the first one I did, one of the editors said, Jim, you sound like Wikipedia. Could you get a, an attitude? And I went, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> scientists, aren't, scientists aren't supposed to write with attitude.
1: What have you had to change to write for Forbes from your scientific background? Do you...
0: you have to get an attitude. <laughs> okay, And, and you know, because it's more of an op-ed kind of thing. Um, as But I'm, I'm a little bit more scientific than most, which because I'm a scientist and I want to educate that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but yeah, so so it's so you have to be a little bit more interesting than most scientific uh, subjects that are interesting only to those in that field. Uh, so so the whole point of this and the reason I'm a trustee for the Herbert M. Parker Foundation is education. So at this point, the public is woefully misinformed about issues like nuclear um, and other things uh, related to it, and so. You, know, you you got to bring them up because that level of ignorance is dangerous in, in, in a society. In,
1: indeed, indeed. And we're, see, we're, we're seeing the, the fruits of that in a lot of, a lot of cases. But j- just delving a little bit more into your background because I found it very interesting and it's similar to some of the things that I've been doing in, in planetary science. Uh, on your website, um, you said that you were involved in radiobiology and shielding for space colonies. Right. I actually uh, co-authored a study with the Canadian Space Agency on building a greenhouse on the moon. So I did a little bit of work in that as well.
0: Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah, so I, I looked at things like, you know, rock types on the moon, like ilmenite, you know, which is titanium, iron, ore, uh, which is rather plentiful compared to most, most anything else except anorthosite and basalt. So, so looking at, at, at different and gabbros. so looking at different rock types, looking at their shielding effectiveness to gamma, uh, in you know, just looking at straight death uh, of bacteria, you know, behind the shielding, that kind of thing. So it was pretty simplistic, but it was the '70s, so that's that's okay. And of course, it, as as you'd expect, ilmenite is the better one because it's higher Z. You know, has a lot of titanium and iron okay. in it. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Using the regolith for shielding effectively.
0: Yeah. So, so you just dig down, you know, and, uh, you know, if you dig down deep, deep enough, there's very little that uh, cosmic rays would be coming parallel to the walls. Um, and so you get quite a bit of shielding. And you have to go down a fair amount, but not not too far. You know, 50 feet, 60 feet, you get pretty good shielding.
1: One of the the biggest risks, I guess, of, of putting astronauts in space is the the radiation dose that they might get. Do you know what the guidelines are from NASA right now for astronauts in future space habitats?
0: They're not really there. They're not really there. The 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 last I saw they were considering ten rem per you know total dose. So ten rem per year or 10, 10, 10 rem. Um, as opposed to nuclear workers on Earth that that can get up to five REM a year. And of course five and ten rem are nothing. I mean you know regulatorily they sound like a lot, but in terms of actual health effects, you no one ever's at any health effect from 10 ram um, there are some places on the earth their background radiation is 10 ram
1: what's that in sieverts
0: um 0. 0.1 sieverts
1: okay because a round trip tr- to mars i think they're calculating something like one or two sieverts in a, a in a, a round trip two-year program right
0: right right so so two years yeah so that that would be pretty high. Um, to Mars. That's why you actually need a nuclear-powered rocket, not a chemical-powered rocket, to get to Mars, because it cuts the travel time in like a quarter. So now you're getting back to normal, you know, normal doses that that you don't really have a, a problem with. And then you know, talking about putting water shielding because you know, cosmic rays, uh, solar rays. I mean, those are high energy stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, high energy gamma, high energy neutrons, stuff like that. So. Shielding isn't all that effective against that, like we do just normally with gamma, you know, you know one MAV or that, that level of gamma on Earth is easily shielded, but on, you know, really high energy stuff is not.
1: So you, you specialize in geologic disposal of, of nuclear waste, and as you say, you worked at the WIPP facility.
0: Right, <clears throat> and I worked on Yucca Mountain for 25 years. So I, I'm one of the original authors of the license application to uh, NRC. Very proud of it. It's a lousy rock. a mountain is just a it's just a lousy rock, and uh, you know. But we we learned a lot from that program. Uh, and although most people, you probably heard most people say, "Oh, we wasted 12 billion dollars." No, we didn't. Okay, 10 billion of that 12 billion, we learned for everything. It doesn't matter where you put it. So, things like transportation, corrosion, you know, cask development, uh, computer modeling, very, very important, uh, of subsurface flow. So, you can actually model how well the repository works over time. All of that doesn't matter where you put the repository. That was all very useful stuff, and we needed to learn that. We only wasted about $2 billion, which sounds like a lot, but over 30 years, I mean, that's really not very much. Okay. So. So that's kind of, you know, where it is. Now, WIP was, of course, much cheaper uh, because it's the right rock. So it didn't require all these engineered barriers that Yucca Mountain required to engineer around the fact that you picked the wrong rock. Um, And, you know, Yucca Mountain was totally political anyway. It was chosen for political reasons, not, not for scientific reasons. So
1: it was a poor choice scientifically. It was a political.
0: Oh, yeah. It was second to the worst one. <laughs> you you you're pretty hard pressed to pick a worse place to to put nuclear waste
1: it, is it just because it's a you know not in anyone's backyard or or very is out in the middle of nowhere or?
0: no most of the places were basically out in in the middle of nowhere um and that's kind of funny i mean there there are um there are seven criteria we use to to determine whether a place is good okay one is a simple geology you know you need to know the geology. If it's so complex that you can't understand it, then this is not a good place to put it. <laughs> a simple hydrogeology. So how the water is moving through the subsurface. It, it should not be so complicated that you can't figure it out okay, easily. Okay? So it has to be a simple It has to be a tectonically interpretable area. Now, that's important. Yeah, you need to know where the faults are. You need to know where the faults are. You need to know where it sits in the plate, you know, intraplate or a plate boundary or whatever. You need to know that because that's really the most important aspect of, of, of placement is, is, is the tectonic uh, situation. Um, then you need to choose a rock that is, that doesn't need a lot of engineering. I mean, the whole point of choosing a rock is that I mean, I like the pyramids. Pyramids are great. Love them. But we don't build things that last a million years, okay? So the Earth does, however. The Earth makes things that last millions or billions of years. So you pick a rock that is suitable, that has been formed naturally by the Earth, and that has all the properties you want. It's impermeable or relatively impermeable. It's the right redox. It's the right chemistry, all that kind of thing. Um, And that's where you put it. Okay. So you shouldn't pick a rock that you have to engineer now, you know, huge amounts in order to make it work. Okay? Sure. And in term in terms of being in the middle of nowhere, th- there's a rule that's, you know, colloquially called the Walmart rule, in so far as there has to be a Walmart within an hour's drive. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I like that rule. I don't understand it, but it's great. <laughs> put put more succinct or put more technically, it has to have the socioeconomic ability to support a small population. Because you can't ask people to live and work in a place that can't support them. I mean, you, you know, again, so it has to be a Walmart within an hour's drive. Um, you can't have to drive five hours to find a Walmart. Okay, so it can't be in the middle of nowhere. It has to be a little town, like Whip has Carlsbad, and Yucca Mountain had Pahrump. So, you know, you you can live there, because you can't ask people, and, and you know, this would take a fair workforce like a thousand people you can't ask them to go live in tents and you know things and have no society nearby sure you know? sure so so again it's kind of, but it's very very important people do not kind of think of that at all but it's incredibly important and having worked at all these places i know it <laughs> um because people gripe about they're not close enough to civilization you know in in but that's, you know, that's a sacrifice for the workforce. They have to be far away, but there needs to be some place that they can live and enjoy. So,
1: so are there good places to, to do this? Have you identified reasonable substitutes for Yucca Mountain? I guess the whip yeah. is, is getting close to retirement, isn't it?
0: Well, not really. I mean, that's, that's, all of this stuff is bureaucratic. Okay. Whip was chosen, or the salt. See, the whip is in what's called the Salado formation. It's a beautifully massive, you know, 2,000 foot thick, 10,000 square mile of formation that is ideal for this. Absolutely ideal. There's no rock that is better. Now, there's other salts. Because salt is, is massive and at depth, at like a half mile depth, it creeps closed. OK, it has a self-healing property that cannot sustain an opening or a pore space or a fracture or anything. So very quickly, 10 years, 15 years, it crushes down. It's you know, nature's big trash compactor. It's kind of funny, but it cannot sustain an opening. And that's why it's perfect. OK, that's why you can still find 250 million year old seawater stuck in it. OK, this is where you mm-hmm. want to put something. Where it is so isolated that you just are given 200 million years of performance. You don't have to work for it; <laughs> you're simply given it. At Yucca Mountain, we had to work for 10,000 years. I mean, it was is you know okay. We need bentonite. Oh no, bentonite's not going to work. Okay, we need you know titanium drip shields and all this nonsense because it's the wrong rock and the wrong chemistry.
1: I see. So you're not too fussed that they've decided not to continue with Yucca Mountain at this point. You you agree with that? decision
0: oh i was i was overjoyed interesting was absolutely okay. overjoyed that they stopped it it's stupid it's just a stupid place and because because you have to engineer so much to fix it um the cost increased by a factor of 10 it was supposed to cost 30 30 billion okay then it was up to 90 then it was up to 200 now it's up to 300 or 400 and the you know last count could be 600 billion dollars because you picked the wrong rock um so that's absurd okay um whip is the right rock don't have to do anything to it it's giving you everything it, you need right there and that's why whip is so cheap and is performed so well now in 1957 uh i, I could go on like this forever by the way so you have to you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is very interesting i'm, I'm yeah, learning a lot it, it's quite neat um so in 1957, the first nuclear power plant opened it at, at Shippingport, right? So, and we had been making bombs for almost 10 years, or about 10 years. So the, Amer- the um, Atomic Energy Commission, which is the predecessor to DOE and, and NRC, um, approached the National Academy of Science and said, listen, we're building up this weird stuff called nuclear waste. We need to do something with it eventually. What do you recommend? And they recommended whip. Basically, that was it. I mean, they didn't call it whip or anything, but they, they said, ah, the Permian salt. Sure. Permian salt. salt. Absolutely the brilliant. It probably took them a half hour around a lunch table to figure that out because every geologist knows massive salt, not bedded salt, not salt diapirs, you know, or, you know, thing, you know salt domes, or anything, but bedded massive salt. Okay. And we have a lot of that. <laughs> we have a hundred thousand miles of it. The best one is the Salado Formation in Southeast New Mexico, West Texas, in what's called the Delaware Subbasin, where it's per- it's absolutely ideal. I mean, you couldn't find a better rock, a better place. And we don't have much nuclear waste to start with. I mean, all the nuclear waste in the world ever produced in history would fit in that one repository. You don't need, you know, two, three, four or five repositories. I mean, we, you only need one. Now, each country... Maybe wants one. Maybe France should have its own. You know, Russia should have. So we have its own. But there are countries. The Finns have one. Yeah, and the Finns have one, and the Swedes, and but they don't really have that much waste. And so the idea that you're going to spend billions of dollars um, building a repository for a few for a few reactors is, is insane. I mean, that's that's insane. So there is a a, a group in Europe called the Arias um, Group that is got 14 countries together who have only a few reactors they said we need one place for all of us we don't need 14 repositories for for few reactor waste that makes sense um, so yeah so that, that makes sense so there should only be a couple in the world a few um, but in fact uh, I'm of the mind that we you know the United States should open up a salt repository take everyone's waste it's only one repository worth I mean all the nuclear waste in the world would fit in one soccer field so why in the world? Uh, would you not do that? Okay, so
1: I guess people would so be worried kind of about the cost of transporting it and the risk of, of sending it across the ocean.
0: No risk. No risk. We've, we've been doing that, by the way, a lot. People don't know that. We, we ship nuclear waste around the world all the time, <laughs> from, from England to Japan to France to Israel to all sorts of places. We, we ship this stuff um, and never have had a problem. And never have had a problem shipping it on land. And we've driven this It's all the
1: PR though, isn't it?
0: Oh yeah, it's all the PR. And and that's okay. I like to say, you know, everyone's so afraid of nuclear. It's all virtual fear because nothing has actually happened. I mean, yes, Chernobyl, I know. I mean, almost a hundred people died. I know it was horrible, terrible, but not thousands, you know, not thousands. Um, You know, Three Mile Island, nothing. It didn't even get past the the outer wall. Um, And, you know, Fukushima, no one died from radiation. People died from fear. Sixteen hundred people died from forced evacuation when they didn't need to be evacuated. Yes, yes, and that's sad. That's 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 one of those consequences of being afraid and being misinformed. Is that you make the wrong decisions, um, and it's costly both in life and in. And in treasure.
1: Yeah, that that's the key aspect. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I started this podcast was to, you know, let's let's have some rational public policy, people. <laughs> let's let's cut through this fear. Let's get to the facts and let's let's find out what what we need as a society to make make this work to address climate change. We need to be building nuclear, maintaining nuclear, and we need to get over this unreasonable fear. So. This is one of the three pillars of the anti-nuclear case. When you would ever say we need more nuclear, they say what about the waste? That's the the main pillar. There's no solution to the waste. This is this is their talking point, right?
0: Yes, there is. <laughs>
1: and you're saying that it's solved. It's a solved problem. We've done it. We're done.
0: Yep. Piece of cake. In fact, not only is it solved, it is easy. <laughs> it is it is the easiest thing to do is to dispose of nuclear waste. The safest, easiest Thing
1: there is in canada we're also discussing building a, a deep geologic repository and there's a lot of discussion about the politics of it and getting the politicians on side there's also a lot of um, discussion about um, native land rights in the areas that they've chosen to put this and, and the need to uh, get buy-in from the the peoples that the original peoples of those areas is a, a big thing right in the past people just dumped stuff on their land and now you need to be socially responsible and you need to make sure that they have buy-in but unfortunately they're not cohesive as a whole and you're going to get one group is going to buy buy-in and another group is going to be opposing it and and it ends up being an endless loop of of bidding for, for people's land.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and nowadays we can't seem to make national decisions. You know, it, there's so many little interest groups and states are all up or down or whatever. It's, we can't have a national consensus because we've kind of lost the ability to trust scientists. Now, unfortunately, scientists have no decision-making power, this is this is one of the things that that's very funny. Um, people think we do, but we don't. I mean, we we you know we, you give us a problem, we answer it. Maybe it takes years to answer it, but we answer it. And then if you don't like it, you can ignore it, and that happens all the time. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't make me feel bad anymore. And I, I'm over it. So. But <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty much it. And, and so it's it's sad uh, because then again the politics and. Not even the economics, but sometimes economics, but it's the politics just gets in the way of everything and it makes the decision. So Yucca Mountain was decided because Jim Wright was Speaker of the House in 1987 from Texas. That's why Yucca Mountain is Yucca Mountain. That's the only reason it is. And so, um, you know, and Tom Foley from Washington State, where I am, I remember him well, um, he was House Majority Lead so it wasn't going to be in Washington. It wasn't going to be in Texas. All the powerful Eastern politicians got rid of all those sites in the East, and it came down to you know Yucca Mountain. And there was this new junior named Harry Reid, just got elected, and uh, they said, "Harry, it's yours." And then that was it. So wow,
1: so many decisions and major decisions are, are are made in that way. I, I was just reading an article on on the shutdown of Indian Point and how it was basically oh. three people in the room were responsible oh, yeah. for that decision. There was Cuomo, there was Riverkeeper, and there was the the company that wanted to get out. And that yeah, was it. That's terrible. The whole that's policy terrible. of New York's energy basis is out the window now because these three people didn't
0: like it. Yeah, and it's going to be replaced by natural gas, of course, not renewables. And they're going to try to buy hydro from Quebec, but you know, that's going to go away soon. Quebec likes its own hydro, and New England, as well as New York, is vying for... Because every time you you close a nuclear power plant like New York, New England, New Hampshire, Vermont, every time you do that, it's replaced by natural gas or you start importing hydro from Canada. Well, that doesn't work that long. Um, And so, yeah, so now uh, New York and New England are in. Have problems because they cannot depend on energy coming from certain sources. So when things get tough, when you get another polar vortex, nuclear is the one that works best for polar vortices. I mean, it's just amazing how well it works. It doesn't blow it off like it's nothing. In fact, it works better the colder it is. Nuclear works better, produces more energy the colder it is, because the temperature difference between the um, the core and the outside temperature is drives the uh, the cycle so drives the efficiency. Yeah, drives the efficiency. So it's kind of funny. So now they lost a lot, um, and that's really sad.
1: Yeah, I get the feeling that you know there's a lot of push to build renewable. Renewable is free energy. They're saying, but these people that are saying that aren't calculating the cost of integrating it to the grid and having a reliable twenty four seven source of power. Yeah, and this is going to come home to roost in a lot of places.
0: I think. Yeah. There's no such thing as a free lunch. I mean, everyone knows that. Kurt Vonnegut said that a long time ago, and it's true. So uh, California is experiencing that. That's why their their electricity um, rates have gone up, skyrocketed, because they put in so much renewables that they don't have the backup for it. And so that's what the reason for the brownouts and blackouts last year, very key. And now they're going to close Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant for, for no reason. And well, for, for political reasons.
1: The antis will say it's because it's on a, uh, on a fault
0: line. No, it's, there's no fault it, near enough to matter. Also, we build nuclear power plants to withstand earthquakes. There has never been a nuclear power plant to have been harmed by an earthquake. Fukushima, nothing happened from the earthquake. Absolutely nothing. Okay, It was a tsunami. Yeah, And we had told Japan, I, I'm sorry to say, we told them for years that their seawall was crap that their backup generation was crap, and they ignored us. So, okay, that's what you get. Um, now, in fact, NRC, our Nuclear Regulatory Commission, would never have even allowed them to open with that seawall. Hmm. Absolutely wouldn't even let them open. So a strong regulatory agency like we have, we have the strongest. Even though the antis don't like NRC, it is absolutely the strongest regulatory body in the world. They'll shut you down for nothing. I mean, for the, using the wrong colored ink, they'll shut you down. Um, yeah, because not supposed to use blue. You know that. I didn't know. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, I it's learned funny. that the DUE kind of funny. So um, if you have a weak regulatory authority like Japan had, you're going to have problems. Okay, um, but you know, Tepco should have known. That's their. But still, you know, and, and that was you know the biggest earthquake and the biggest tsunami in history uh, for that region. And it's like, what do you expect? But even though. It, you know, there was radiation, never didn't kill anyone, never will. There's, there wasn't enough released. There was no, no one got enough of a dose. They didn't need to evacuate for 10 years. Um, so, yeah, so they, they did it wrong. And, and then they shut down all their reactors. And then they imported coal and oil and natural gas to extreme measures. So that itself killed a bunch of people.
1: They killed more people shutting down their nuclear than then were killed in the accident
0: well yeah no one was killed in the accident from from radiation i mean a a a big tower collapsed on someone okay that had nothing to do with the radiation and two and the tsunami swept two workers fukushima workers out to sea when they died but radiation didn't didn't kill anyone at all and never will so um yeah the one person they attributed uh later on was a smoker. Who didn't spend any real time at fukushima so there was absolutely no reason but they they wanted to find someone so he died of cancer but he was a smoker <laughs> so okay yeah
1: the, the cancer timing was not nearly correct for for the uh radiation from fukushima to have caused it the, the incubation time is much longer than what we saw in that case
0: yeah it's, it's called a latency period and there are for specific for specific cancers that are caused by radiation. They're not all are caused by radiation. I mean, you can't get stomach cancer from radiation. You can't get colon cancer from radiation. Okay, there are certain ones you can get. You know, leukemia. You can get thyroid cancer, but only if uh, with iodine one thirty one, which was not. You know, all you mm-hmm. have to do is not eat anything for two months, and then that's gone. Um, and so, yeah. You
1: have other problems.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And so there are different latency periods. And so when somebody comes, you know, when after Fukushima, I remember the antis, especially physicians for irresponsibility, they, you know, they came up and said, all these, you know, thyroid cancers are caused by Fukushima, like, you know, five months after Fukushima. It's like, what are you talking about? The latency period is like four to 10 years. And so, uh, again, if you don't understand the science, which is complicated, there's no reason the public is going to understand this. Um, Then you, you're going to make stupid, stupid decisions. That's unfortunate.
1: Yeah. They, they don't understand statistics. They do poor studies. They, they ignore uh, control cases, you know, the bias from extra screening, all of that stuff. You know, if you don't do it right, it's going to look scary. You know, if you start searching for cancers, you're going to find cancers because cancers are common.
0: But we've never, I mean, all of these, all this danger and fear, all I, Tell people, it's like, look around, where's all the people that died from nuclear? There's, there's none, I mean, it, there's none. And so it is the safest form of energy there is. Uh, even workplace injuries and you know, usual industrial stuff like falling off a ladder, the OSHA safety record of nuclear is better than any industry in history in the world. There is nothing that approaches it. It is safer to work in a nuclear power plant than to sit at a desk trading stocks in New York City. <laughs> those that's ocean that's ocean number I, i'm not kidding that those you just just look up the ocean number and that's because no one who's trading stocks cares about safety <laughs> you know, they don't you know they, they, it's, it's not commonplace whereas if you're in a nuclear power plant safety is everything i mean you know in fact the, the the local one here um is a new rule you can't go up and down a stairway without holding a railing if you're not holding a railing you'll be fired they're, they're very serious about this kind of stuff.
1: I mean, th- this is part of the problem, isn't it, though? I mean, this is why there hasn't been a new reactor built in the USA in the last you know, 30 years, right? This
0: is why the cost has skyrocketed. Right. That, that's another thing. The problem with costs, doesn't matter whether you're building a nuclear power plant or go- the Golden Gate Bridge. If you're spending billions of dollars and you start and stop, start and stop, start and stop, Your costs are going to go go through the roof. If you change contractors after two or three years, like happens all the time in DOE and stuff, then they have to come up to speed. All that just adds cost. Um, That's why gas plants can be thrown up in a year. One, they don't take much steel or concrete or anything. They're just incredibly easy to put up. And then you can get them built in a year. And so there's no starting and stopping and there's no laying off the workforce and they're trying to hire them back later and all this kind of stuff that that nuclear is is hurt with.
1: I can't believe the double standards between nuclear and gas or fossil fuels. Like it seems like you don't need any regulatory requirement at all for fossil fuels. And they have a demonstrated impact on human health and mortality. Uh, You know, you know, you're killing hundreds of people as soon as you build a gas plant. It's you know it. You can't burn gas without killing people
0: yeah and as a geologist i i know the oil field well and uh, you know people die all the time on rigs i mean it's one of those very dangerous things and you know you just you know push the body aside hire a new one lessons learned and you move on now if anyone dies a nuclear power plant which has not happened by the way if anyone dies at a nuclear power plant, the place would shut down and, and everyone would be up in arms, e- even if they just fell off scaffolding or something, which is the only thing that ever happens, um, breaks their neck. In fact, that happened about seven years ago. That's the last death in, in the nuclear industry. Someone fell off scaffolding. Hmm. Okay, that happens. And nothing to do with nuclear.
1: I think more, more people fall off windmills than fall off scaffolding in nuclear plants.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, the death—the death rate—I I call it the death print. I don't know if you've seen—seen seen my stuff on that. The death print, if you normalize to say a trillion kilowatt hours of, of production of electricity, yeah, nuclear is less than 0.1 death per trillion kilowatt hours. Okay, uh, solar is 150, <laughs> wind is 440. You know, coal is 100,000 dead. I mean, coal kills a lot of people every year, and China knows that. And then that's why they finally started to clean up their act. Uh, but they were killing about two hundred thousand people a year from coal in China. And now they're only killing a hundred thousand a year. Yeah, China. And that's great. Yeah, great job. We only kill ten thousand. Okay, <laughs> that's not very good. But hey, it's better than China.
1: So should we be concentrating on new nuclear? I know there's a lot of news, and Canada's politicians are pushing for funding new SMRs. Yes. Um, people are talking about thorium, people are talking about right. breeders, um, or should we just be building more Gen 3 uranium burning plants?
0: Okay, this is a very interesting question. First of all, the small modular ones are where you have to go. Okay, China's building big ones, South Korea's building big ones, Russia's building big ones, other places are building big ones. We're never going to build a big nuclear power plant again and we shouldn't pretty much because of the issues we've been talking about it's just you know politically untenable one of the weird things is that when you talk about small modular reactors they're pretty much the same as big ones except die except squeeze you know, skin down so I mean they're the same technology as, as the big ones uh, New scale out of Oregon, you know, Corvallis uh, is the best one. It's the most farthest along in terms. It's, it's been approved, and they're, they're going to be starting building in a couple of years. The first one in Utah to load follow a bunch of wind farms. Very good. Um, and that's, you know, it took us a while to figure out that smaller is better. Okay. And so when you take the core and you shrink it down like a tenth of the size, then suddenly the surface area to volume ratio is such that the heat bleeds off quicker than it can build up. You cannot melt down. When you have a small core, you cannot melt down. Okay, wow, that's important. Yes, incredibly important. So now you, it's easy to do the passive safety. You know, all power goes out, all water disappears, and the thing just cools off. Okay, now we know this, we've known this forever anyway because of the nuclear navy. I mean, you know, nuclear navy is the unsung hero of nuclear power. They spill build small modular reactors, they have since nineteen fifties. Okay. Um, and there's never been a problem with them. Okay. And people people, you know, spend six months under the underwater living and working next to one. So what is the problem here? I mean, there's absolutely no problem. So uh, so we know that they work. They're the nice thing about being small and modular is now you can get around this building issues where you're on site and then protests stop you and then you, you know, contractors replace and all that nonsense because you manufacture everything at a factory and then you ship everything to the site. You only don't have to do much on site. So right there, that is a huge savings. Um, And also, when you talk to the public, you say small modular reactors, they like the idea. Because they like the idea of small. Yeah. Because to them, big is bad and small is better. And okay, great. And if it can't melt down, even better. So I think we're we're with the small. That's where America is going towards, and probably Canada as well.
1: It's it's mostly a political decision, I think, though, right? Because of the regulatory regimes and the and the status quo of the NRC right. and everything. Right.
0: Right. Now the now the thing about the other the advanced reactors thorium and salt, molten salt reactors and things like helium, is that the NRC has never approved one. <laughs> okay? They only know light water reactors. That's all they know. That's all they have to staff for. So if you're going to think you're going to get approved in five or 10 years, you're, you're totally out to lunch because you, will, you, you have to submit something and then NRC will have to go hire staff that know that technology and there's hardly anyone that knows that technology so it you add five to ten years just by not being a light water reactor with uranium right do you see that yeah yeah it has nothing to do with technology it's just simply nrc doesn't know anything about it so that's why new scale and the other light water reactors small modular reactors have they're the ones that will go first and that's great because we have lots of uranium
1: the timeline though even even then is is not horribly exciting right we're looking at 10 years probably before they become commercial
0: um well the first commercial one they will start building in 2023 in utah so we're talking a couple of years okay. and unless <laughs> unless some political shenanigans stops it but uh probably that'll go forward i i i really hope it does
1: okay well that's that's promising
0: and we're pushing for one out here at Hanford to to power the Hanford site because right now the you probably heard of the vitrification plan to try to vitrify old you know sludgy, uh, gross peanut butter like texture defense waste you know bomb waste. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's that's always a problem because they they they. they confuse that with reactor waste and people have this idea of oozing barrels of reactor waste from the Simpsons yeah
0: yeah oh absolutely it's it's funny but it's completely wrong but the defense waste um, again more politics we were ready to to grout it because it likes to be in grout chemically it loves to be in grout and we have grout formulations where it would completely unleachable you know, high strength perfect then because France vitrifies their sludgy waste from reprocessing, suddenly the people here, especially the regulatory people, got it in their heads, oh, we want to vitrify. Now, vit, unlike France, this waste is the wrong chemistry for vitrifying. It doesn't like to be in glass. It hates to be in glass. So now you set yourself up to fail. <laughs> so so here's this vit plant that was supposed to be online and working, and it's it's 40 years buying schedule and it's 10 times over budget because it's the wrong thing to do. Um, But you can't get the state regulatory agency to buy off on grout because they love glass for no Hmm. particular reason, except France does it. Okay. So this is the kind of stuff that's, that's going on.
1: And Uh, uh, I, I always imagine that this is done on purpose to, to hamstring nuclear industry.
0: Some of it is, some of it is. Um, some of it is just bureaucratic incompetence, um, and and again, the system is not set up for science to make any decision. It just it's just not set up for that. Yeah, no. Um, so,
1: well, that's that's why you and me are, are talking to the media, right?
0: <laughs> yes. No, I love it. You know, I, I I love MSNBC and all that, but you know, during Fukushima and stuff, they their nuclear experts were not scientists. They, they were anti-nuclear activists. And it's like, that, they're not nuclear specialists. I mean, they're not scientists. They didn't have one scientist on except uh, uh, Stephen Chu, uh, the then Secretary of Energy, who didn't know anything about waste or energy, by the way. Yeah,
1: they'll go straight to Greenpeace and and, and their anti-nuclear uh, friends. And that seems to be the problem. I and mean, these these people just are, are totally biased against it, it seems, and, and just ignoring the evidence. It,
0: it's a religious, yeah, it's a religious fervor. I mean, it truly is a religious fervor. They, they have no interest in, in science. And, and again, that's, you know, nuclear was one of the oldest examples of, of um, conspiracy theories. I mean, one of the oldest ones. And now though, everything is rife with it. So, you know, we have a huge anti-science push around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, which is really sad because that's what made America great. I have to say this: What made us the the richest, most powerful, best you know civilization in the history of the planet mm-hmm. was science and engineering. And so, to suddenly become anti-science, to be anti-vax or anti-whatever, um, is insane. Uh, so it's like, wait a second, that's what made us great, uh, you know. And so, this is this is counterproductive. It's also normal. This is what happens when, when, a when a society reaches a pinnacle, um, and it's, you know, the greatest thing on earth, then everyone relax and you have the luxury to be stupid. So,
1: so what's the solution? What should we be doing?
0: Education, but that's a long-term thing, right? Yep. You need, you know, you need science education in school more than it is. It was not bad when I was, you know, in, in grade school and in You know, middle school and high school, 60s and 70s. But, you know, it wasn't great. It was getting better. And then it kind of shifted. Um, And again, the 80s were a very strange time, very bad time for science. I I remember Reagan... um, and this idea that, you know, we're not going to fund much basic science anymore. We're going to fund applied science. That was his major mandate was applied science. Well, applied science requires basic science to keep feeding it stuff it can apply. Okay? <laughs> After a while, you kind of run out of stuff if you're not funding basic science. And so in order to get funded, you know, NSF or, or even any, you know, DOE, anything, EPA, NASA, you had to have an application even though you knew you'd never get to that application, who cares? I mean, you need, this is the science we need to do. Um, And so that, that rose uh, beyond belief in the eighties and and continues on. Yeah. At the end of your, your grant proposal,
1: you have to shoot down a rocket or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anybody believed that was going to happen. And I remember Star Wars, Reagan's Big Star Wars thing where they were going to use lasers to shoot down all the all the ICBMs from from Russia, and the technology just wasn't there. And it's like,
0: "Mm, okay, but laser physics, woo! (laughs) Got a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. So anyway, so that's why small modular reactors, because, you know, new scale, the company I mentioned with the light water reactor that's already been approved, Mm -hmm. essentially, they have a, they have a 12 pack. I love it. They call it a 12 pack and a 12 pack of, you know, 12 modules hooked up. That's equivalent to a big reactor. That's about 800 uh, megawatts. So yeah, each one is small, so each one can't melt down, but all together you've got a big reactor and that's fine so that's great okay um and also because of that because you have 12 individual reactors you can load follow renewables as well as natural gas you can move things up and down you can come online, offline. what it's just amazing you can load follow in seconds hmm. um, in fact you can there are three different ways of load following in seconds minutes hours and days actually four types so you you know you can adjust on the fly as whatever you need large reactors are a bit more difficult to do that not impossible but more difficult
1: yeah i was talking with canon uh, brian of terrestrial energy a, a few podcasts back and they're very gung-ho about their their technology and moving forward as well but it's the the regulations of the over-the-top regulations are, are really a drag on getting things to market and that and it's all based on you know uh, the ALERA principle that as as low as reasonably
0: allowed or able achievable yeah achievable right as low as reasonably achie- except for the reasonable is gone. <laughs> it's as low as possibly achievable.
1: What's reasonable becomes unreasonable in the eyes of the public because the public is is afraid.
0: So you'd figure if you if you reduced any radiation to, to background, that would be good enough, right? I mean background. No, that's not good enough. You have to be a hundred times below background to be accepted. Now that's insane. (laughs) That's just, that's just insane. And so that's why we can't do anything because even waste disposals, you know, you can't, you know, you, you have to make sure that in the, in the year 10,000, a hundred times less dose is getting out of your repository than is in the background. Uh, Well, that's absurd.
1: Uh, and it's... Yeah, and it leads to very odd situations where, you know, if you get something that's a little bit radioactive from, say, a coal industry thing, and they can just throw it in a dump. But in a nuclear, if you move that piece of metal that's been irradiated from coal ash, you bring it into a, into a nuclear place, they can't put it in the dump. They have to bury it. In Yucca Mountain or, or wherever,
0: yeah, 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 absolutely, and that's that's rather insane. So uh, we're still grappling with that.
1: We need we need to get the public behind this. We need to get. I mean, there's a lot of rational people out there. I don't think the public opposition to nuclear energy is is that deep. I think it's very, very broad and and shallow because not a lot of people think about it.
0: Well, yeah, and all they hear are these horrible sound bites, and and unfortunately these difficult issues don't lend themselves well to soundbites. It's just, you know, you have to spend an hour. And who spends an hour? But but I give these talks now, you know, on nuclear waste and dirty bombs and all that kind of thing. And after that, the audience is just odd because they never really understood that. And, of course, who would tell them? Who knows this stuff? Um, but, yeah, it takes it takes that long. So that's why education is key, but education is long, long-term. Um, You just can't, you know, open a fortune cookie and get the answer to nuclear.
1: So, yeah, we're getting to the end of our our time slot. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. Um, One last question for you. What, as a scientist, what's your favorite science fiction?
0: Oh, the Dosati experiment (laughs) by, uh, um, the the, the Dosati experiment by, um, oh, God, who wrote Dune? I'm drawing a blank. Herbert. Yeah, Herbert. It, yeah it's 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 one of the best ways but that's and then of course the foundation trilogy but it's dated uh, but it's uh, still no, that's a
1: good one i like that yeah, that's
0: a good one but every time i reread it i go oh this is dated <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you very much for the recommendation i'll have to look into the dasadi experiment
0: yes yes
1: and thanks for coming on the rational view
0: excellent thank you so much it's been fun